As we saw last Sunday, the Lord spoke again to Job after a less than enthusiastic response to his first speech. And as I said last week, it may be that I am too harsh on Job, that in fact he learned what he was supposed to from the first speech, that he is small before the bigness of God, and that his knowledge is limited in time and scope. But the Lord begins the second discourse, if you wish, as he does the first, brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you shall answer me. On the face of it, these are harsh words. Uh, If you're healthy, maybe not so much, but all that Job has been through, these are, brace himself, I mean, he is in a very weakened physical condition. He's been through a lot. It would require a lot for Job to brace himself like a man. But I would argue that Job still has not come to see what God wants him to see. The underlying themes in the second speech are the justice and the power of God. You may remember that time after time, Job has raised questions in his response to his friend's speeches about God's moral rule over the world. That is the question of justice that God's justice somehow has permitted Job to suffer, even though Job is innocent. It really calls into question the justice of God. He implies that God's moral rule is less than what it should be. He also questions God's power to rule as he pleases. If God really is in control, how has he allowed this to happen? The first speech dealt with God's wisdom and power, giving specific examples from creation to show Job some of the mysteries of God's creation, his control, and his care, which Job, and I would argue even here we are millennia later, we still do not fully comprehend. There is a great mystery to it. There's a great order to it. But not all of creation is orderly. And so in the second speech, God deals with the exceptions those we might not include if, in fact, we were in charge of creation. Those who do not belong in God's creation. The wicked, the useless, and the hostile. In this second speech, uh, indirectly, Job is asked three questions. If you were in charge of the world, if you were in charge of the universe, what would you do with these exceptions? Would you crush the wicked, get rid of them? Would you, in fact, create the useless, behemoth? Would you control the hostile, that is, Leviathan? And in each case, power is the issue, and justice is the principle. If you are a just God and you have all power, then why, in fact, do you have wicked people? Why do you have useless creatures? Why do you have hostile creatures in your creation? In God, power and justice are not at odds. They often are with us. Uh, Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. We do not think of people who are powerful as necessarily being just. In God, power and justice are complementary qualities. They accomplish the greatest good for the entire world. But if Job would answer yes to these questions we would answer yes to these questions. Crush the wicked, not create the useless, control the hostile. 
what we would end up with is a world without grace. Let's look at these, just to review quickly about Behemoth and Leviathan. Behemoth, I take to refer to the hippopotamus. Um, And as I mentioned last week, a creature that seemingly has no purpose, uh, has no unique function, nothing special to set it apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. And I think God is in fact pointing to those aspects of creation which we may see as ugly and useless. But God does not. He says in verse 15, which I made along with you, and verse 19, he ranks first among the works of God. The hippo for God is not ugly, is not useless. It may appear that way. In the same way, all the things that have happened to Job or the things that happen to other people may appear to us to be ugly and useless and with no purpose. Part of that is because we're very utilitarian. It has, there's an efficiency thing. This has to work out in a particular way. This has a function. If it has no function, then you need to jettison it, get rid of it. But God has, has included behemoth in his creation as he has many other things that we would not. And then Leviathan, I take to be a sea or a land monster of mythic proportions. It's mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament in the context of being in opposition to God. It represents that which opposes God. And in the Leviathan, we find God's gracious tolerance of that which is hostile to him. I don't think we would put up with this. Someone's hostile to me, I No, you have no place in my world. And we find that God does not always act to punish short-term evil because he sees the end from the beginning. God knows where this story is going. At the end of the second speech, there's a subtle reference, sort of a shift occurs, in that Leviathan is described in terms used for the accuser, that is, Satan. In chapter 41, verse 34, nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. The character of Satan is revealed. He fears no one on earth. He presides over the pride in human hearts. Without mentioning what happened in chapter 1, God tells Job something profoundly important. He is in control. His tolerance of short-term hostility and opposition is not a sign that he is weak, that he is impotent. God, in fact, is in control. Job's reaction is found in the first six verses of chapter 42. Look at them, if you would, please. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." From Job's reaction, we find that the question is no longer why. 
Why has this happened to me? I'm an innocent man. Why has this happened? Now the question is, who? And the who question has two parts. It's two-sided. Who am I? It's a confession of need. And who is God? An affirmation of faith. Who am I? Job is asking. And when God addressed him out of the storm, he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? And Job now repeats the question in verse number three. And he makes a humble confession of need. I am weak, I am unwise, and I am unworthy. Job needs to confess to each of these deficiencies. Even though he has not sinned, he has come really close, perilously close to blasphemy when he demanded that God come down to his level of power and understanding. The mention, I think, of Satan at the end of the second speech through Leviathan, the one who is over the, he's a king over the proud, hit the mark with Job. And he realizes that his pride and his own righteousness has brought him very, very close to Satan's control. Therefore, before he can affirm his faith, he must confess his pride. He's not confessing the covert or overt sins, which Eliphaz has accused him of, or the hidden sins of the hypocrite, which Bildad has tried to uncover. Job confesses that he has relied on his own righteousness and his own wisdom, his own understanding. By confessing that he is weak, that he says far too much, he is wordy and he is unworthy, Job moves on. He progresses to an affirmation of faith. We'll see in a moment. So who am I is the first question. The second question is, who is God? If a person never gets beyond the question, who am I? Despair can be a real possibility. If all you do is look in a mirror, not literally, but figuratively at yourself, and try to figure out who you are, um, I think you will despair. If, in fact, Job had stopped with the confession that he was weak and unworthy, the book would probably just have been another tragedy. To limit ourselves to the question, who am I, whether for ourselves or the human race, will ultimately lead to the destruction of our faith. We will lose all hope and all faith. It is only by asking the companion question, the other side of the coin, who is God, that our faith can be resurrected. In the case of Job, it can be expanded and it can be affirmed. Jesus' message when he came here was repent and believe the gospel. In the confession, Job repents. He repents, verse number six. In his affirmation, he believes. In response to the question, who is God? Job says, I know that your power can do anything for me. I know that your purpose will be accomplished for me. I know that your will is good for me. I know that your presence is real to me. And I know that your grace is given to me. There are two key words in Job's affirmation of faith wonderful and see. The three friends spoke with eloquence about the power and the majesty of God, but none of them used the word wonderful or the word wonder. 
they spoke of fear, and that is a logical response to the justice of God. But wonder is, in fact, an experiential response to the grace of God. And as we've said, as we've gone through this study of Job, we hear no grace in Job's friends. None at all. But if you have mystery, if you have wonder, then you will have grace. They are inseparable. God expects us to marvel at the mysteries of his creation. And he wants us to enjoy the wonders of his creation. But most of all, he wants us to see the wonder of his grace and the mystery of his creation. Before this experience, the power of God in creation provoked in Job the fear, fear that is the beginning of wisdom. Now, in faith, a sense of wonder has led him to the presence of the one who is wisdom itself. So the first key is wonder. The second is see, S-E-E, to see. It opens opens up our understanding of Job's affirmation of faith. Elihu, in his second speech, says, For the ear tests words as the tongue tastes food. In verse number five here, Job says, My ears have heard of you, past tense, but now my eyes have seen you. In scripture, we are told that no one can see God and live. And so we must ask, what is Job saying? I think he's telling us he has had an encounter with God. He has come to know his person and his presence so intimately that he can say, but now my eyes have seen you. In defending himself, Job's vision of God was blurred. His vision of God's purpose God's presence, God's person. Once he stopped talking, he began to see clearly through to the person, the presence, and the purpose of God. Now he has a correct perspective. One writer has put it this way. No longer does he rely on tradition or hearsay about God. He knows God for himself. No longer does he have to depend upon human reason to define the nature of God. He has been in the presence of God. No longer does he have to tremble in fear before the power of God. He has seen the grace of God. No longer does he have to demand an explanation for every mystery. He has put his trust in God. To the question, who is God? Job has found the answer. He is the God of grace. Knowing the answer to the question, who, Job no longer needs to ask the question, why. He is the God of grace. Another way to think of this is, what if you, let me ask you, what if you had the chance to live your life all over again? Of course, we don't. But what if you could? Certainly an intriguing notion. I would argue that if each of us could live our lives over again, they could very well be graceless lives, lives without grace. That is, you would think, I know the mistakes I made before, 
So I'm not going to make those mistakes again. And I know there were choices I should have made, but I didn't make. I'll make sure that I make them now. I'm not going to make the same mistakes again. And without saying it, there is a hint that there would be no need of God's grace. No need of God's direction in the decisions that we would make. But don't you realize that it is in fact the grace of God that takes the choices we make, both good and bad, and he weaves them into the fabric of who we are as individuals and into his purpose for our lives, his purpose for humanity. It is the grace of God that takes the bad choices and teaches us important lessons and sometimes turns our lives in a new direction for the good. But if we don't make those mistakes, we say we don't need the grace of God to teach us what to do, what direction to take. We would have lives without grace. The grace of God is not limited by our choices. We need to be careful that somehow we would say, you know, the good choices I made, the good decisions I made, that was the grace of God. We think they turned out good because of God's grace. And we would fail to recognize that some of the very bad decisions and choices we made, God was able to use for his purposes in our lives. You remember the story of Joseph and his brothers. Um, after their father died, after Jacob died, the brothers are afraid that Joseph, who's now the second most powerful man in Egypt, is going to get his revenge on his brothers for what they did to him. Job, or Joseph says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. If his brothers had it to do over, they probably wouldn't have sold him into slavery. And if they hadn't done that, he wouldn't have gone to Egypt. And Potiphar's wife, trying to seduce him, if that hadn't happened, and it goes on, and if these things had not happened, then in fact, the saving of Jacob and his family would not have been accomplished. This is not to say that we should just make decisions mindlessly, there are, in fact, real consequences oftentimes to the bad decisions that we make. But I'm personally convinced that we do not suffer the full consequences of the decisions that we make. It may seem so at the time, but in fact, God is gracious. And Job, when everything is said and done, is who is God? He is the God of grace. By the way, we heard this in the first chapter when Job lost everything except his health. He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He had a sense there, but somewhere along the line, he lost that. And now he is reminded, he repents and he believes that God is the God of all grace. We now come to the last part of Job. We'll not finish up today. We will not next Sunday, but the Sunday after. Um, 
but you will notice, at least in the NIV, that the poetry has ended. It is now prose. Okay. It returns to what we find in chapters 1 and 2. And by the way, if you were to read Job 1 and 2, the prose, and then like, if you're not keen on poetry, I'm going to skip the poetic part, and then go to the end of Job, um, you would get a, a picture of Job's former state, how he endured incredible afflictions, and then how God rewarded him for his faithful endurance. And you would have a message that God may test us severely with sufferings we can't comprehend, but ultimately he will bless us more than what we had before. Um, but we can't do that. In chapter 3, we have his primal scream. In chapter 4, his friends begin to pile on, if you wish, as they all try to make sense of what has happened to Job. In the NIV, at least, in what I have, this section is called the epilogue, meaning it's the conclusion, it's the final part which serves to sort of round out, complete the design of the work. You should know, or at least I think you should know, that there are many who are unhappy with this last part of Job. They wish it had not been included. It's too much like a fairy tale ending, and they lived happily ever after. Some would complain. Some would say, yeah, it gives the wrong idea. It seems to affirm the conventional idea that if you play your cards right, if you're pious, if you're humble before God, you will just be super abundantly blessed by God. He will give you more than you could imagine. And this would vindicate what the friends have been saying to him. Uh, Job, if you get your act together, if you repent, which he did in verse number six, then, then God will bless you. And so some people are like, yeah, we're not really comfortable with that message getting across. Some would say, why not leave Job in the mixed condition of sorrow, hope, contrition, and assurance? Which is, I think, generally what happens to many Christians who go through difficult times and God brings them out and God does not give them more than what they had before. They may be in poor health, and that may be their condition for the rest of their life. But in that poverty of, of, of health, God is able to speak, and they are able to listen. People would say it had been a lot more realistic if you had ended the book at verse number six. And so they would cut out the epilogue altogether. Or they would call it an addendum that was added by someone later on to sort of make the story come out right. But if, in fact, you cut out the epilogue, Job is left in dust and ashes. Look at the last words of verse number six, dust and ashes, that's where Job is. He's repented of his pride and his wordiness. Uh, some would suggest that this is a case either because God is unjust or because he's powerless. But in any case, he's left with the tragedies of life. He's not restored. He's just there in dust and ashes. Um, this, in part, is the conclusion of Rabbi Kushner in his popular book called 
when bad things happen to good people. Rabbi Krishna writes, are you capable of forgiving and loving God even when you have found out that he is not perfect? Uh, Rabbi, we need to talk. Um, You've missed the point of the book of Job. Contrast this with another perspective found in the book, Where is God When It Hurts? He has been there from the beginning. He has watched us reflect his image. He has used pain even in its grossest forms to teach us. He has let us cry out and echo Job. He has allied himself with the poor and the suffering. He has promised supernatural strength to nourish our spirit. He has joined us, hurt and bled and cried and suffered. He has dignified for all time those who suffer. He is with us now. He is waiting. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The epilogue is important. So important that we're not going to finish it up today. We're going to take another sermon to look at it. It is important. First of all, it is a public vindication of Job. This is the same Job who said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Should we not accept good from God and not trouble? And while he may have been guilty of pride, the Lord proclaims him innocent of the charges laid against him. We'll see that as we read through here. Those who thought they were defending God and speaking in God's name. God wants to be on public record so that there is no mistake that he preferred Job's attacks against his justice to the friend's defense of him. The epilogue is important because it shows that the position of the friends is inadequate. In fact, when you take it to its logical conclusion, it's downright dangerous. As we'll see in a bit, they are condemned for what they have said. You have spoken of me what is right. You have not spoken of me what is right. And in the epilogue, the position of traditional wisdom literature is not blasted into nothingness, If, in fact, one lives according to God's law, then one will have a better life than if he or she did not do so. I think one of the points of this book is that there is no necessary connection between a person's behavior and what happens to that person in this world. But it doesn't negate the principle that what a person sows, they will also reap. And thus, Job, being a righteous man, will have his prosperity restored. And lastly, the epilogue, well, actually two more things. The epilogue makes sense of all that's gone before. It lets us know the friends were wrong. We might have wondered if the friends were right or if they were wrong. I have in my notes, it reminds me of the movie The Sixth Sense, that it's only at the end that then you go back and look at everything that happened in the movie, you're like, ah, that's what was going on. It's not until you get to the end that you begin to understand the whole story. Uh, 
And now we understand the story of Job. Lastly, the epilogue illustrates wonderfully that God is indeed the God of grace. That's what Job has discovered. And now we see it in action. There are two parts to the epilogue. Um, the condemnation and restoration of the three friends and the blessing and restoration of Job. Uh, we will look um, at the test for the friends and the test for Job, and then the Lord willing, we will look at Job's restoration. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9 here in Job 42. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. In this first part of the, the epilogue, God has arranged a double test, a dual test, one for the friends, one for Job. For the friends, um, interestingly and fascinating, God speaks to the friends as well. Um, just find that amazing. One, one could understand that he spoke to Job, but he speaks to the friends as well. But he's not happy. He says, I am angry with you and your two friends. One translation has, my anger burns against you. And the cause, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. The three friends have been guilty of misrepresenting God. They have dishonored God by their arguments against Job, and they are condemned for justifying God's ways to men. And in the process, and in God's name, they have condemned his servant. Without this information, we might make the mistake of embracing what the friends had said. You may remember when we started with Eliphaz at the beginning that one of the things we saw is that there is some truth in what the friends have to say. God does not condemn everything that they say. John Calvin, who preached a series of sermons on Job, have it upstairs, says, We have also to note that in the whole dispute, Job maintains a good cause, and his adversary maintains a poor one. In other words, Job's right, his friends are wrong. Now there is more, that Job maintaining a good cause pleads it poorly, and the others bring a poor case, they plead it well. When we have understood this, it may be to us, as it were, a key to open to us the whole book. Again, without God's anger and his declaration, we might have said that, in fact, that Job's friends are theologically correct. Uh, and reading through uh, Job this week, came across, I'm like, that really sounds familiar. And I saw Paul actually quotes Eliphaz in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm like, well, if Paul quotes him, he must... 
he must be saying something good. But it is here in the epilogue that we see, in fact, that they were wrong. In part because they limited how God could respond. Because they say, if you do evil, God will punish you. If you do good, God will reward you. That's all, those are the parameters. That's all that God, in fact, could do. Meaning that God is a servant of the moral order rather than the author of that moral order. But as I said earlier, beyond that, they failed to present God as the God of all grace. There's no grace in what the friends have to say. We could spend more time on this, but I want to move on. I want to mention some things of this passage. I don't know if you caught it as I was reading it, but four times the Lord calls Job, my servant Job. This is, you'd think, well, this is a common term. This is a common designation. It actually is not. If you look up in a concordance or Google it or whatever you want to do, you will find that very, very few people are referred to as God's servants. And here we hear it four times. We heard it in chapter one when he said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That's important. And here at the end of everything, he is still God's servant. Another thing is God is angry at the friends, but it's not the last word, okay? Rather, there is grace. And grace is, in fact, the theme of chapter 42. He gives them a place of repentance. It's not an easy road. It's not easy to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. But God gives that to them. Seven bulls, seven rams as a burnt offering. Not an easy thing to do. It would involve admitting guilt. And it is an expensive offering. I don't know what bulls went for back then, but I would think killing seven bulls is, involves a lot of money and seven rams as well. And then they have to go to Job and ask him to pray for them. As one author notes, it is a nice touch that under God's prompting, the sinner and the person of Job makes intercession for the saints, the three friends. The man they had accused of great sin, either overtly or covert sin, the man they have railed against as a wicked person, even calling him a maggot and a worm, now is the one who's going to pray for them. And the test for them, the question is whether or not they're willing to do as God directs. And as we see, they, yes, in fact, they did as God directed them. But now there's a test for Job that may not seem as obvious to us. God has expressed his anger against the three friends. He has given them instructions with regard to their repentance, including go to my servant Job so he can pray for them. The question is, the test is, will Job pray for them? Because I think if we were making a movie or if we were playing this out in our minds, we're like, yeah, <laughs> you guys are on your own. I remember all the things you said to me in the midst of my despair. 
Job, though, if you remember, has had a lot to say about the duty of friends toward one who is in distress. In chapter 6, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. In other words, even if I'm wrong, should you not in fact care for me? In chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 31, he says, If I have rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against his life. In other words, if someone is wrong, if they are your enemy, if they are in despair, you still have to be gracious toward them. The test now is, will Job do what he has said? Will he put into practice the things he has said to his friends? Or will he, to those who have been so merciless, say to them, you guys are toast. I'm not praying for you one iota. You will note that God seems confident that in fact Job will pray for them. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer. How can God be so confident of this beyond the fact that he knows everything? Job has been the recipient of God's grace and those who have received God's grace are in turn gracious toward others. The proof of the grace of God in Job's life is seen in how he treats those who have treated him so badly. Grace that we have received is grace that we are to show to others. And the test for Job is will he pray for his friends? Jesus spoke of this in the Sermon on the Mount. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. The reason we forgive is because we have been forgiven. The reason we are to show grace is because we have been shown grace. The reason oftentimes we do not forgive others or do not show grace is we have forgotten how gracious God has been to us. A sign of God's grace in our lives is that we are gracious toward others. The lesson of chapter 42 is grace. The Lord spoke to Job in grace. Job recognized God as being a God of all grace. God showed grace to the three friends. He's angry with them, but he corrects their error and he gives them a place of repentance. He just doesn't say, that's it. No, he in fact calls on them to repent and for Job to pray for them. And then God accepts his prayer. I mean, so many things could go wrong here. When God says, "Um, you're wrong, I'm angry with you. So that could be in the story, that's not good. Or he could say, you need to sacrifice and Job will pray for you. But if Job doesn't want to pray for you, well, if they don't want to do that, I mean, so many things can go wrong here, but it is God's grace that drives the story all along. And now, as we look back over the book of Job, we come to see even more clearly that what was, which was missing, it is a sense of the grace of God. 
something we so easily lose sight of. As I said, the last Sunday of this year, Lord willing, we will finish the book of Job. And we will see there the restoration of Job is God's grace exemplified. It's demonstrated in his life. But here, even here with the friends, God's grace is seen. Job came to see that he was asking the wrong question all along. Why? Why is this happening to me? I'm a righteous person. I'm, not, I'm innocent of anything that people might accuse me of. Why is this happening to me? And here at the end of the book, he comes to see, been asking the wrong question all along. The right question is, who? Who am I? And who is God? And the answer is, God is the God of all grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, how easily we forget how gracious you are to us. We prefer the story of vengeance, of revenge, of someone who has been wronged finally getting their revenge. Job came to see who you are. He'd heard of you, but now he saw you for who you are, the God of all grace. His friends didn't see that. That's why they gave him such bad advice. I fear that sometimes we are like the friends. By your spirit, open our hearts and our minds, open our eyes to see that you are the God of all grace. How gracious you have been to us. You've poured out super abundant grace in our lives. That grace does not mean an easy life. It does not mean a life without difficulties. But it does mean a life of grace. For all the bad decisions we've made, for all the good ones we failed to make, you've been with us every step of the way. Thank you for loving us and being so gracious to us. May we show that love and that grace to those around us. And may we always be grateful, remembering your grace toward us. I thank you that we could come together and worship you this day. May your spirit and your grace go with us in the coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.